that's so important when you embrace that and you, you have that teaching every day, how we're part of that global family and our worldview. It's all linked to ceremony. It's linked to language. It's linked to the need to protect the land and the water for future generations. And I believe if First Nations worldview can be incorporated in the public sector and private sector, I think there's a bright hope and bright future for all of mankind. That's Perry Bellegarde, former National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations and the new Honorary President of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. He's our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Hi, and welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. I'm your host, David McGuffin. Before we get to our guest, I would first love to encourage all of you to subscribe, if you haven't already, to Canadian Geographic magazine and help support independent media in this country. For only $28.50, you get six issues a year and digital access to award-winning journalism and photography about Canada, its people, land, environment, and much more. It's a completely unique and just wonderful magazine, and it needs your support. To sign up, just go to canadiangeographic.ca forward slash subscribe. And just a little bit more housekeeping here. We got mail, a nice note from Paul Chatterton in Lake Loon, Nova Scotia, about my interview at the end of December with UBC fisheries expert Daniel Pauly. So Paul Chatterton writes, Daniel Pauly has to be one of the most intelligent and articulate minds in our scientific community. A man of in-depth knowledge and profound common sense, I thoroughly enjoyed David McGuffin's article and podcast, if I were Prime Minister Trudeau, I would have Daniel Pauly on speed dial. Well, that seems like good advice. That interview went deep. That felt like part scientific, but also just a deep philosophical conversation about the state of the planet and what our role is as people on that. So uh, I'm glad you enjoyed that. And if you haven't listened to that, by all means, go, go back into the archives and check that out. It's two episodes back. If you want to share some of your thoughts on the episodes we've aired here on Explore, you can send us an email to explore at canadiangeographic.ca, and we may read them on the air. So today we're honoured, very honoured, to have Perry Bellegarde on the podcast. You likely know him from his time as a transformational national chief of the Assembly of First Nations, helping push key legislation through Parliament for First Nations and Indigenous people. He's a proud member of the Little Black Bear First Nation in Treaty 4 territory in Saskatchewan. Last year, he was named Nation Builder of the Year by the Empire Club, and of course last fall became the Royal Canadian Geographical Society's Honorary President, following in the footsteps of the late great Alex Trebek. And on a personal slash full disclosure note here, uh, Perry and I worked together on his podcast, Akamemuk, which focuses on leading issues seen from a First Nations perspective. It's currently on hiatus, but coming back soon and well worth a listen. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Perry Belgard. Perry Belgard, welcome to Canadian Geographic's Explore podcast. Glad to be here, David. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. So congratulations as well, I should say, on becoming the uh, the new honorary president of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. Yeah, well, thanks for that. It's a it's a it's a big honor. Um, you know, it speaks directly to the the modernization and the transformation of one of Canada's long established institutions, and uh, it's been around for over ninety years. And uh, you know, getting Canadians to to connect. To, and explore the land and the great vastness and riches of Canada, and it, it, it's a great opportunity. So I'm really humbled and honored by the uh, by the uh, posting and position they bestowed on me. 
Fantastic. I'm curious about what you see your role is and what are there things in particular that you're looking to achieve in this role? I think it's raising the awareness about as as Canadians how rich and vast Canada is, but as well how we're all related and interconnected, not only as human beings, but to all living things, uh, to the trees, the rivers, the mountains, to, to the animals. That connection is something I really want to start espousing and beginning the education awareness process to Canadians and, uh, well, to the whole world listening in, um, that we're all connected as human beings. It's also linked to preservation of biodiversity, but it's also linked to, to Indigenous peoples and our languages. So everything is linked and connected. So I see this as an opportunity to, to build upon those, those teachings and uh, that education awareness process to all people listening in. You mentioned languages, and I know as National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Indigenous languages was a big part of your mandate. And one of your successes was getting the Indigenous Languages Act passed through Parliament, um, which is, aims to revitalize Indigenous languages across this country. I'm just, could, can you ex- explain the importance to you of Indigenous languages and, and maybe even the connection of that to the land and the environment? Our languages. As, as Indigenous peoples, you know, I've always said we have um, a lot of rights and a lot of responsibilities, but one of our most fundamental important rights is the right to self-determination. As Indigenous peoples, we have our own languages, our own lands, our own laws, our own peoples, and our own identifiable forms of government. Language is key to self-determination, to self-government. And I always linked and a lot of our elders and our old people always talked about treaties and inherent rights. But if, and they always used to caution and say, Perry, if you're going to talk about treaties, you have to have ceremony because treaty is ceremony and ceremony is treaty. And then in our teachings, language is used in those ceremonies. You know, when you use a, a pipe, you use your language to pray and get connected to God, the creator. Um, when you go into a sweat lodge ceremony, you use your language. You go into Sundance lodge ceremonies. You go to potlatch. Like your language is fundamental to who you are as a First Nations person because they're linked to ceremony. And and again, that right to self-government is so fundamental to who we are. Uh, that's why it's so important as a Cree-speaking person or as a Mohawk-speaking person or as a Mi'kmaq-speaking person or a Dene or a Blackfoot. Like it's our languages are fundamental to who we are. And it's linked to land as well and territories, but it's it's all connected. And uh, definitely, if you put ceremonies at the f- at the forefront of that, um, how you get connected not not only God but all of creation, it's fundamental to who we are. You know, and obviously, residential schools did a huge amount of damage to to language. And you're talking about ceremony as well. That was obviously impacted. I'm just curious about how much growing up in Little Black Bear. In, in Saskatchewan, how much language and ceremony was a part of your childhood? And then, you know, and if not, when did that come into your life? Yeah, I didn't, uh, on Little Black Bear, um, again, the residential schools really have done a, a, a huge negative impact on different reservations and territories across Canada and every province. Um, you know, for the listeners that don't know, the residential schools were I've called it a genocide of our people. You know, languages were outlawed uh, and, and you're, you weren't allowed to speak. In fact, children were punished for speaking their First Nations language. So that connection to I, your, your self-identity, your connection to your family, your community, your nation was cut off. And uh, being penalized, like there's horror stories of children being electrocuted in the electric chair or thumbtacks put on your tongue, you know, uh, like all these things 
to basically beat the language out of you. Mm-hmm. And the residential schools had a huge impact uh, on killing the language. And so a lot of our, our parents and grandparents that went to residential schools never embraced it. And then in Saskatchewan, like for myself, there was not a lot of language at Little Black Bear. Like we're, we're a Cree tribe and an Nakota tribe. We're mixed, but very, very, very few speakers that maintained it because of the impact of the residential school. For me personally, it wasn't until I started going to university through the Indian Federated College in Regina and, and the, they had the elders there and getting connected to the elders, mm-hmm. you know, and the importance of uh, First Nations education, the importance of language and ceremony. Uh, really connected with uh, Willie Pegan and James Iron Eagle and Jim Ryder and all the elders that were there helped get you that, that first grounding into it. And that was my first exposure to getting reconnected to ceremony and language was uh, in the early 1980s when wow. I went to university. Do you remember that first ceremony you went to? Oh, there are many. There are pipe ceremonies, a lot at the Indian Federal College, you know, but um, it wasn't until I got into First Nations politics in 1986 when I got elected at the Tribal Council as a mm-hmm. vice chair at the Touchwood Fathers Capel Tribal Council and then going out to the Nikanit First Nation in the Cypress Hills and getting connected to, to Gordon Oaks uh, and uh, all the elders there. Um, and, and, and Nikanit is a very special place. It's a very special First Nations. It's way in the Cypress Hills and it's isolated all by itself, you know, a Plains Cree First Nation. And, and there's no, there's no churches in that community. You know, they're isolated. They're almost forgotten, but they've maintained their ceremonies and, and their cultural practices and, and ways and traditions and was quite pristine. And it's beautiful there. So the first Sundance that I really participated in was in the 1980s there at Nikanit. And, and mm-hmm. that really has begun my, my own spiritual journey with the Nikanit family and the Oaks family. And uh, my relative, I'll call them my relative. It's like another home for me there. So it's a very special place. And for you, what does, what, I mean, what does ceremony fulfill within you as a person and you as a leader? And what, what are the aspects of that that, that really resonate with you? Being from Little Black Bear and being from Treaty 4 territory in southern Saskatchewan, the elders always uh, put ceremony first. If you're going to discuss or talk about treaty, uh, you put your, your, your tobacco and your prayer cloth, Vipanasana, and your pipes first and your ceremony first uh, because the treaty itself was ceremony and it was a covenant between God and, and uh, creation, all of creation. So you get back to those fundamentals. Um, and that's very important. And so ceremony all my life was, was, was linked to the work I, I, I've done in terms of promotion, protection, enhancement, implementation of treaty, our treaty relationship with the crown, that covenant. And, uh, you need ceremony for that. And then, and part of that ceremony is the importance and relevancy of your language because they're connected. And then when you embrace that teaching, then you also uh, embrace the fact that we're all connected as human beings. And uh, how we're all part of the bigger global family because our elders and our our, our, our wisdom keepers, they acknowledge uh, Mother Earth every day and give thanks to Mother Earth for all she does for us and how we're related to Father Sky and Grandmother Moon and Grandfather Sun and we give thanks and acknowledge them for all they do for us. And then the ones that sit in the east, south, west and north, we give thanks to them. And then our relatives, the four-leggeds, 
uh, how we're related to them and we give thanks to them and acknowledge them and then the flyers and the swimmers and the crawlers and the male plants the female plants and then the grandmothers that protect and look after the water rainwater fresh water salt water and the power of women when life comes water breaks so that's so important when you embrace that and, and you, you have that teaching every day how we're part of that global family and our worldview it's all linked to ceremony it's linked to language it's linked to the need to protect the land and the water for future generations. And you can see the relevancy now, David, with everybody's talking about the impact of climate change and, and global warming and everything else. And I, I believe if our worldview and the First Nations worldview can be incorporated in the public sector and private sector, not only in Canada, but globally, I think there's a bright hope and bright future for, for all of mankind because we're all related, we're all interconnected. And again, Back to the Royal Canadian Geographic Society of Canada. It's another vehicle and tool to elevate what I just described. So what a huge opportunity. Can you describe to me growing up in Little Black Bear for people who might not know what that experience was like? Sure. We grew up on Little Black Bear on the east side of the reservation. Um, I had uh, five brothers, four older brothers and one younger brother, six boys. Uh, we grew up uh, with no running water, so you had to haul water from... Uh, uh, the sloughs, you know, the you know, and strain it, and uh, in the winter time, you you haul snow and melt it on the wood stove, uh, you know. So um, we learned to work. We 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 hunted and uh, we trapped you know, weasels and and muskrats, you know. Uh, so we grew up hunting and and fishing and trapping and and gathering, and it was a, a very um, structured, happy life. And uh, that's how we grew up. And uh, for me, uh, growing up on the reserve, that's how we, we lived. And then we were, I was bused from grade one to grade nine to Goodeve, Saskatchewan, and uh, was integrated into the provincial school system. Um, you know, we had St. John's Day School on the reserve. I attended a few days, uh, you know, in my kindergarten just to go to the field of school, but <clears throat> really was integrated into the provincial school system in grade one. And... Uh, that that's uh, how we grew up on the reserve with uh, my mom and dad and and uh, my brothers. It's interesting because in some ways you, what you paint is a, you know hunting and, and trapping and it's, in some ways sounds very traditional. But English was the language. English was the main language growing up. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned earlier on, uh, my dad went to Lebret Residential School, mm -hmm. and uh, I knew he could speak some Cree and Soto, mm -hmm. um, but we didn't keep that in the house. Uh, it was English was the main language. And uh, then our ceremonies, not full exposure to them until later on in the, uh, in the 80s. So yeah. that's just how it was. And, uh, but there are on the other reserves, like on Star Blanket, you know, the, and uh, Papixis and Okanese, there are sister communities right next mm -hmm. to Little Black Bear. Yeah. Um, so File Hills Reserves, we're the File Hills Reserves, File Hills First Nations made up of the four. And uh, I knew... Uh, as a kid growing up, uh, on some reserve, there were still uh, ceremonies, First Nation ceremonies, but we never really participated or went to those on Star right. Blanket or some of the neighboring reserves. Yeah. Did your dad ever talk about going to Lebret Residential School? Any memories of that? No, no. My dad never talked about it. Um, he was a, a really good hunter and uh, and uh, uh, trapper and taught us all those skills. Uh uh, but he passed when I was 16, so oh. um, so mom basically held us together after that. But he didn't really talk about the times at uh, at Labrette. 
even though uh, he went back to work as a head childcare worker. And uh, ironically, mm. my mom was also a cook there. Wow. She worked as a cook at Libret Residential School for many, many years. Um, but all I remember is uh, he didn't want us to go to Libret as right. uh, as his sons. He made sure we didn't go. Yeah. But he didn't say why. Why, yeah. yeah. But clearly it did what it was designed to do and that he, he lost his language or, he, or the, it wasn't passed on intergenerationally. Pass yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What's a, do you have a favorite memory story from growing up in Little Black Bear? Oh, there's many, many good times, uh, memories, uh, you know, hunting stories, trapping stories, but even as a, but how everybody had a job, you know, uh, everybody had to haul wood and chop wood and everybody had to, 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 um, you know, haul snow and melt it on the wood stove and all those things. Uh, but for me, one of my fondest memories is when as a, as a young boy, uh, snaring rabbits, you know, when you're, when you're eight or nine mm-hmm. and you go set out your rabbit snares, you know, but, uh, Grabbing one or getting one in your snare and bringing it home. Right. It's, uh, what a very proud feeling. Like yeah. you're, you're, you're contributing, you know, and you're helping. And as yeah. a young, young boy, you know, uh, helping to be, you know, providing for the family and, uh, coming yeah. home with that rabbit and giving it to my mom. I was, uh, let me tell you, that was a very proud day for me when I was, uh, nine years old, uh, bringing home a rabbit for my uh, rabbit snare in the dead of winter. Yeah, uh, but it was something. So that's a very fond memory. Yeah, and you, you uh, help you help with dinner that night, probably right? exactly. So I think most people probably know you as the national chief of the Assembly First Nations, which you were for mm-hmm. what seven years, right? Yeah, um, seven years in. In terms of what you achieved there, I mean, looking back at that time, I mean, what it, what are your proudest achievements, and are, are there things that maybe that slipped through your fingers too that you wished had gotten done? Well, I think in seven years, I. Uh, yeah, I've been in leadership for 35 years mm-hmm. at all levels. As as a leader, I've always said you're 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 a servant or helper of the pe- people. And in Cree, we have that word oskapios. If you're an oskapios, you're a helper, or a servant. And your an oskapios helps build the Sundance Lodge, helps build the Sweat Lodge, helps with the pipe ceremonies, helps look after the elders. You know, you're an oskapios. You help serve the feast food. You're an oskapios. So in leadership. If you equate that to you being a helper or servant of the people, I, I really embrace that as a leader. Like you're nothing more than a helper or servant of the people. And I, in 35 years, it's what I've done. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in my last seven years as national chief, I think of um, key pieces of legislation and policies we've had an imp- impact on. And I think of Bill C-5, uh, you know, and Bill C-8, you know, these are the the, the, these things before they became official laws, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, September 30th, the Reconciliation Day, you know, Bill mm-hmm. C-8 is the, uh, the the oath of office, allegiance to Canada, incorporating dialogue and, and references to treaty rights and inherent rights and Aboriginal rights. You know, Bill C-15 is huge. The UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, the implementation of that now mm-hmm. is huge. Uh, and then why, why Bill C-9... I think a lot of people don't understand that one. Yeah, before coming back, to the, I, I have also have B- mm-hmm. Bill C-15 is important. Mm-hmm. Bill C-91, the Indigenous Languages Act, very right. important. We just talked about that. Bill mm-hmm. C-92, uh, the child welfare legislation where First Nations law is paramount and keeping 40, there's 40,000 First Nations children in foster care now. So there's five very important pieces of legislation that are passed. Mm-hmm. And uh, simple policy changes like carrying over from one fiscal year to the next. 
uh, you know, for, for transfers out to the reserves. Um, Ten-year transfers now are in place for certain First Nations, you know, that can look at that. Uh, those are huge policy changes. 40, 44 billion plus in First Nations in funding to First Nations communities after 20 years of a 2% cap. So more money is in education, water, and housing, and infrastructure because the gap needs to be closed. So to me, that's, you know, people are going to say, wow, okay, do you know the impact of that? And so now you query, why is C-15? Mm-hmm. Your question about C-15, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, uh, is very important because within that piece of legislation, it speaks to the illegal racist doctrine, the doctrine of discovery and the doctrine of terra nullius as being illegal racist doctrines. That's right in Canadian law. Mm-hmm. And as well, there's a two-year time frame for an action plan to fix the policies and laws of Canada that aren't in line with the declaration. So that means all the, the outdated policies and laws that don't respect inherent rights or treaty rights have to get in line now. So that's a huge opportunity to fix the comprehensive claims policy, to fix the, the specific claims policy, to fix the additions to reserve policy, and to fix the inherent right to self-government policy because they're all based on termination of rights, title, and jurisdiction and not recognition of rights, title, and jurisdiction from by and with First Nations people. So that's huge. So that's, mm-hmm. that's why I say it's very important. And those are some success stories. And even maintaining the unity of 634 First Nations to yeah. make sure that the Assembly of First Nations is relevant organization, is responsive to the needs of our people, and is respectful of the diversity. Even maintaining that in the last seven years was it was a huge challenge. But um, the relevancy of the Assembly of First Nations as the go-to place in terms of policy advice or in you know influencing uh, legislation is is I think we 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 move the art sticks down the road. Can I ask you, I mean, we talk about the UN Declaration, and I'm, where does the Indian Act fit into all this? Because I think anyone who looks at the Indian Act or reads the Indian Act realizes just how rooted in systemic racism that act is, and yet it's still a legislation that's active in this country. And I mean, what point does that need to be repealed, or how does that even happen? Or? Yeah, for the listeners that don't know, the Indian Act's been in place since 1876, and it wasn't a treaty implementation act. It was an Indian Act, which is just a simple federal piece of legislation. And under that Indian Act, people don't know that we weren't allowed to leave the reserves without a permit right up until 1951. We couldn't Mm -hmm. leave the reserve without a permit or a pass. You know, so the pass system was implemented to keep Indians on the reserve. And so so all the land and resource uh, wealth around the reserves could be exploited or developed without our involvement right up until 1951. And then as well, we couldn't have access to a legal counsel to a lawyer till 1951. It was illegal under the Indian Act. And of course, we we weren't allowed to vote till 1961. Uh, The Indian Act broke down our elective system of of clan mothers and uh, the potlatch system and outlawed Sundances. Uh, It outlawed, it it, uh, imposed a two-year elective system. So our hereditary chiefs and our clan, everything was, it was, it was done away it done away with our, our, our self-government systems, our own government laws and everything else. So the Indian Act's been there since 1876. Mm-hmm. So um, I've always said we have to move those two things, the residential school system and the Indian Act are two things we have to move beyond. And again, the Indian Act's been there since 1876, but every reserve and every First Nation are going to be at different levels in terms of moving beyond the Indian Act. 
And so every reserve and every nation, if you will, if because we have 634 Indian Act bands and we have 60 nations if you go by language, but we also have treaty areas, you know, and so there's going to be some options and some models to move beyond the Indian Act. So whatever works for each First Nation, whatever works for each the nation itself, reconstituting themselves as nations and our treaty areas to move beyond the Indian Act. And so we're all at different levels. You're not going to get it done tomorrow morning. There's got to be a process so that our own laws as well can be respected. Uh, I made this point before that in Canada, you've got common law and civil law that's recognized, but you also have First Nations law, natural law, creator's law. That's got to be room for that as well. But moving beyond the Indian Act is the challenge going forward in 2022 and beyond, but it's going to be a flexible approach, province by province, territory by territory, and nation by nation, and treaty area by treaty area. It's all going to be different. Interesting. Where do you see that happening first? Oh, that varies. You know, you have the Chilcotin Nation getting together in BC. You have the Suwepmuk Nation coming to 17 Indian Act chiefs. You know, the, the Shushwaps are coming together as a nation, the Suwepmuk Nation. Uh, you have Grand Council Treaty 3 working together. Treaty 4, where I'm from, is starting to get organized by treaty territories. Uh, you have some individual reserves going beyond the Indian Act. They have their own self-government process and table. I think there's over 90 tables now under Indigenous Service Canada where there are processes in place for First Nations to reconstitute themselves as nation, exert their nationhood and sovereignty if they wish, and move beyond the Indian Act. So it's a process, and it's flexible, but it varies from province to province to province and territory to territory. I'm just excited about the possibility and excited that people are start, First Nations people are starting to get organized and to move beyond the Indian Act, and that's what's exciting. But you just got to remember that's going to be a flexible approach, and it's going to take some time. I mentioned this in the intro, but you and I work together on a podcast called Akamemuk. So we're colleagues from previously. And Akamemuk means we all persevere, right? And Perseverance. I- don't give up. Akamemuk. In spite of all the adversity, in spite of all the challenges, Akamemuk. Don't give up. Persevere. And it seems an incredibly appropriate name given what First Nations have been through in the last several hundred years in this country, where does that perseverance come from? It basically comes from uh, our reliance on uh, our language and and our ceremonies and to know that uh, you can provide some hope and a brighter day for the future future generations now and those yet unborn. Like even the treaty relationship is as long as the sun shines and the rivers flow and the grass grows, that this treaty will replace, will be in place and be in effect for children now, but those yet unborn. You know, that whole seventh generation teaching that let's make decisions now, but think seven generations down the road for the impact on that seventh generation. And and so the resiliency of our people is amazing yeah, that we can still hang on to our language and ceremonies. And that provides hope, uh, you know, the strength from our elders like that went underground to maintain their ceremonies, their sun dances and their sweats and their pipe ceremonies and their potlatch ceremonies. They, these were outlawed and, and people were criminalized for hanging on to their traditions. So we have to lift up our knowledge keepers, our elders, and... Uh, thank them and love them and hug them and and acknowledge them for hanging on to something that's very fundamental to who we are. So that resiliency, it, it comes from their teachings. It comes from our connection to the land and water. And uh, I think people are starting to wake up that we we, we operate in, in, in both worlds, 
you know, that we have to keep a foot in our, our First Nations world and then the non-First Nations world, that we need two systems of education to function properly and in balance, you know, kindergarten to grade 12, strong on literacy and numeracy and math and science and on to university and technical vocational training on one hand, but equally important on the other hand are your languages and your ceremonies and your traditions and your customs and your protocols to know who you are and where you come from and to be proud of being a Neheawak person or a Anishinaabe person, you know, or a Dene person, Dene Santlene or a Mi'kmaq, to be proud because the residential schools have done a number on our people that it's no good to be Indian, no good to be First Nation. Your language is no good, your culture is no good, your family is no good, you know. It's just so we have to really maintain that balance. And uh, I see that happening in, when you see young people embracing those that uh, walk in both worlds and and uh, that education, the two systems embracing that, it, that's hopeful and that's that resiliency. And uh, that's why I say there's you you keep that hope bright light. How I mean you you mentioned thirty five years in, in in First Nations politics, and I'm just wondering how you've seen the position of First Nations people change in that time. We wrestled more and more control away from Indian affairs from government, starting to embrace that right to self government, self determination, and implement it. I see that happening. Um, I, I see a greater focus on economic independence, economic resiliency. So you can, uh, you know, uh, you, you have to talk about self-government, self-determination, but you got to link it to economic self-sufficiency as well. And uh, that's key. And I think now Canadians are starting to get the importance of investing in human capital and the fastest growing segment of Canada's population our young First Nations men and women. You know, you got 38 million people in Canada. A million plus people are First Nations, but we have a young, fast-growing demographic. And that's why you need to invest in education and training. And uh, you have an aging workforce in Canada. You have a skilled labor shortage in Canada. So you've, you've got some human capital. Uh, so I think there's some changes in Canada is that people are starting to realize um that these issues aren't just for First Nations. These are Canada's issues. You know, that if you close the gap, the, the socioeconomic gap that exists between First Nations and non-First Nations people in Canada, that's good for not only First Nations people, but that's good for Canada as, as a whole. Uh, and the gap I'm talking uh, is, uh, uh, according to the United Nations Human Development Index, Canada was rated high, very high, you know, 7th, 8th. But you apply the same indices to First Nations people on reserve, like we were like 73rd. Mm. That's the gap that needs to be closed. So you need to invest in education and housing and water and infrastructure, connectivity, all of the above. The fastest growing demographic. Deal with the high youth suicide uh, rate, the disproportionate incarceration rate. You know, 30, 40% of our people in the jails, 40,000 children in foster care. You got to deal with all those things. And it just makes good economic sense. People listening to this will notice you use the word hope quite often. Um, and I know in our podcast, Akamemic podcast, you, mm. the last question you ask everybody is, you know, what brings you hope? And I'm just wondering how you see hope as being important in bringing about change. I think it just goes to anybody, not just First Nations people. They never deprive people of hope. That might be all they have left. So you hang on to that. And you always try to provide more hope in a room than when you walked into it. 
and keep those two things in mind. Um, you're building a better country. You have to be hopeful in spite of all the challenges and in spite of the, 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 the shared history have that history in Canada between First Nations people and Canada as a country, like truth telling is part of that, you know, and the genocide towards our people and how the lands and resources were exploited and we were kept on. Like that's truth telling. Uh, you learn from the past. You don't need to live there. So providing something that's bright for the future for children and grandchildren about walking in both worlds. You know, that's hopeful. You can build a better country, a better world. Um, First Nations people have so much to add and make a contribution to not only Canada, but the world when you're dealing with climate change issues. That's a big thing going forward. And uh, so hope is very important. And uh, even in spite of all the challenges from COVID-19, you know, the pandemic, the uh, inflation is going up and, and, uh, you know, we have to provide some hope and that there's opportunity and that things can and will get better. And, uh, you, you always have to hang on to that. Fantastic. One question I ask everyone before I let them go is, um, to describe a place in Canada that they really probably love the most. Like it might be a happy place they go to in their mind or a place where they go just to feel more relaxed about themselves and everything. And there's, can you describe that place for you? Well, it might be a couple of them. Well, I'm going to say Black Bear, little mm-hmm. Black Bear where I grew up. It just when I when I get home, you you know every, you, the land, you know every bush, every little stream, every little slough, you know all the the best hunting spots. You know that's a very special place for me where I grew up. Uh, and then uh, another place would be uh, the Sundance Lodges at Nikanit First Nation, beautiful Cypress Hills. Uh, just the ceremony itself, the people getting connected to the land again and, and the people and, and uh, just embracing that worldview. Uh, those are two very special places for me is out on Little Black Bear, but as well at the, in June at Nikanit at the Sundance time and uh, just seeing all my relatives and friends and the elders and uh, being in that place. It's a very special place in the Cypress Hills. Uh, so those are very, very special places and uh for me and I'll treasure them forever. Can, can you expand on the Cypress Hills and being there for Sundance, like what, what that atmosphere is like? Ogemauhu, see, Thundering Hills, you know, they're a place for ceremonies mm-hmm. and the Cree called it the, uh, a place, a spirit place, you know, and uh, it's, a very, it's, a, it's a special place. And Nikonit Reserve, like I say, was forgotten up in the Cypress Hills for many, many years. And it's, uh, they kept their language and ceremonies alive. And it's a beautiful place in the Cypress Hills, Saskatchewan. There's a lot of rich history there. Fort Walsh is there. You know, the uh, Northwest Mounted Police uh, were part mm-hmm. of the, there as well. And um, so there's a rich history. And a lot of the First Nations in Saskatchewan uh, lived in, and in fact, Little Black Bear was in the Cypress Hills. You know, Little Pine of Cypress Hills, Piapot, Man Who Took the Coat, Cypress Hills, the Cree and Assiniboine were all over there. Uh, and then when the Canada-USA border was formed, the w- government had a policy. They wanted First Nations away from the borders. So a lot of the reserves were forced to move away from that Canada-USA mm. border. Uh, so the Cypress Hills, we all have um, some strong connections to that land and territory, uh, you know, because it was good for hunting, you know, and camping and, and lodgepole pine for, poles for our teepees and uh, medicines. So there's, it's a very special place, Cypress Hills. I encourage everybody to, to go there sometime just to, to witness and experience that. There's a provincial park, there's a center tour. There's, yeah, there's a lot of tourism guides uh, that can take you around and see it. But Nikanit is right part of that as well. Yeah, they're right there. 
So it's a special place. Beautiful. Well, I think I can speak on behalf of a, a number of people to say that we're all looking forward to seeing what you do as the honorary president of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society and look forward to working with you in the years ahead, Barry. And thank you for your time. Well, thanks, David, for your time and as well for the work you do as well. Uh, again, the, the Royal Canadian Geographic Society is a, is a special place, special institution, and it's just waking up people, uh, getting them connected to the the, the rich richness and uh, diversity of Canada, but the world. And I think there's some exciting times for the institution and for Canada and the world as a whole. That's it for this episode of Explore. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked it, please give us a five-star rating and review to help others find us. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss upcoming episodes. You can follow Canadian Geographic on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search for at CanGeo. And I'm on Twitter at MacGuffinDavid and Instagram at David.MacGuffin. Until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David MacGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a, a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We left Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of York boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, Inuit, it means that Inuit oral history is very strong. And we flew over every inch of the country that could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us.